Hey there! Are you interested in getting access to the recordings of my monthly masterclass hangouts, where we do deep dives into different travel hacking programs? If so, please check out the Patreon at patreon.com slash travel. Patreon members will also get to vote on the charity of the month, because in case you didn't already know, all of the GeoBreeze travel income gets earmarked for donations to different nonprofits. That includes the income from the monthly hangouts, coaching services, and credit card affiliate signups. Links to all of those are available in the show notes. This week's Patreon shoutout goes out to Jacqueline. Thank you so much for being a part of the GeoBreeze Travel Patreon community. Welcome to the GeoBreeze Travel Podcast, a show for anyone wanting to level up their travel hacking lifestyle. I'm your host, Julia Menez. I'm a travel hacker, coach, speaker, Filipina-American ENTJ who loves solid travel gear and using shortcuts on spreadsheets. On this show, I'm on a mission to bring you travel hackers from all walks of life to help you level up your travel hacking game. We dive into credit cards, miles, points, strategy, mindset, and the secrets behind how to travel the world for next to no cost. So let's get hacking. But when you're an American in an Ecuadorian jail and you don't have a family locally who's providing these things for you, you have to pay. And they were like, what do you mean I have to pay for my bed? What do you mean I have to pay for my my food? And I'm like, if that's the standard in this country, then that is the standard. And unfortunately, you're in jail. So <laughs> this is kind of like how it works. Hello, travel hackers. You just heard a clip from Aquania Escarne from The Purpose of Money. Aquania is a diplomat for the U.S. Department of State. She is also a financial coach, real estate investor, podcast host, and independent life insurance producer. As a financial coach, she equips her clients with outside-the-box finance tips, debt payment plans, retirement planning, and more. In today's episode, Aquania and I discussed how she integrates points and miles with her diplomatic travels, how to become a U.S. diplomat, what exactly is diplomatic immunity when traveling, and how she ended up becoming the owner of a Hilton hotel property. There are so many different ways to live a travel hacking lifestyle. If you are interested in getting some personalized coaching to get started or level up your points and miles game, you can sign up for a free 30-minute call with me using the link in the show notes. And now, on with the show. Hey, Aquania, welcome to the GeoBreeze Travel Podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Of course. I am so excited to have you here. So you have an incredible career story and one of the more interesting travel hacking stories that I've ever heard of before. But before we get into any of that, tell us a little bit about your background and how you got started with Points and Miles. Yes. So I am an avid traveler. I don't know how far back you want me to go, but I will say in seventh grade, I sold candy so that I could afford to go on a school trip to Spain. And when I got to Madrid, I fell in love with culture and exploring other countries. And I came back and told my mom, I am going to live and work abroad for the rest of my life. She thought I was crazy, but she's a supportive mom. So she said, okay. But I actually focused on that goal for the rest of middle and high school. I actually picked a career where I could live and work abroad. And I only applied to schools that had international affairs programs for college. But I am one of those people who knew at seventh grade what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. And then I did everything in my power to make it happen. So when you were 13 years old or however old you were in seventh grade, what exactly did you want to be when you grew up? 
So to be honest, in seventh grade, my mom had only worked around attorneys and doctors because she was an accountant for a firm. And she, in that environment, I only had them to ask. So I talked to an attorney who said, oh, you could be an international lawyer. And I said, okay, perfect. That's what I'm going to do. So I went to college with the expectation of majoring in political science. I even knew what firm I was going to work for. This is how crazy I was. And then my second year of college, a friend of mine told me about this internship at the U.S. Department of State where you could be an intern for the summer and there was one way you could get paid for it and another way it was volunteer and you got a stipend. But either way, if you got their scholarship, you could pay for school and graduate school and get a career. So I applied. It was called the Thomas R. Pickering Fellowship. I applied for that fellowship as a sophomore in college. But now you can only apply as um, someone before grad school. But back then you could be an undergrad student. And it was very competitive, 400 plus applicants, and they only took 20 people. But I was really fortunate at the time to be one of those selected. So I did two internships, one in Ecuador, one in Washington, D.C. for the State Department. And then after I graduated from grad school, I was given a diplomat position. And in exchange for five years of service, they paid for my education. So you applied for this internship and you knew you were going to become a diplomat. That's correct. It was a part of the deal, right? Like, I don't want to have to pay back all these money you gave me, so I'm going to sign up for the job. But the job actually, like I said, was my opportunity to live abroad and to explore other countries and cultures and learn languages. And so the State Department teaches you the languages you need to know, and they can pretty much put you anywhere in the world. So I went to Haiti for my first assignment. And that was a wonderful experience, but I got to explore the island of Hispaniola, see the blue water beaches of Haiti, and then everywhere I've gone since, I've been able to travel to other places from there. So did you already know French or you had to take a whole bunch of French classes in order to get this diplomat position? You got it. I spent six plus years learning Spanish. And my job sent me to Haiti. But that's a whole nother story. But yeah, they taught me French. And I also got to learn Creole. Once I uh, got to Haiti, I was given an instructor to learn a local dialect Creole, Haitian Creole. And I used that to facilitate a lot of the work that I did and getting to know locals. I volunteered at an orphanage and my language skills allowed me to like really communicate on another level and get to know people on another level, which paid off tremendously because I was there during the earthquake in 2010 and we had a lot of people we had to help and language was one of the main ways we communicated and, and it was able to create an impact to help others by being a speaker of French and Creole at the time. That is incredible. Did the French and Creole stay with you after this assignment or? Not as much as I would like. (laughs) But it comes back to me from time to time because full disclosure, my husband's Haitian descent. He doesn't speak Creole regularly, but his mom speaks French and Creole and tries to, you know, bring it up sometime. And I, you know, can watch certain movies and get through it. But I definitely wish I continued to practice, but I didn't. Yeah. Yeah. How about afterwards? Were you still stationed in places that 
mostly spoke French or where were you stationed after Haiti? So after Haiti, I went to Washington for two years and then I went to Dubai, United Arab Emirates, where English is the English and Arabic are the main languages, but I did not have to learn Arabic. Thank goodness. I tried. I did a couple of lessons and I picked up a few words, but I will say Arabic is one of the hardest languages in the world to learn. And living in Dubai was like an experience of no other. It was definitely a place where you could have an adult playground. You also could be someone to explore the rest of the world because 24-hour airport made it possible to see pretty much another continent in four to six hours later. Dubai's location, their service, and then just the amenities that you have around you are absolutely amazing. But it's also a great place to have a family because they have tons of activities for families and kids and parks. And it's very, very interesting. So in one place, you could ski in the middle of the winter or in the summer because it's an indoor ski ring. You can go to the biggest mall in the world. You can do go-kart racing. You can, I can't even, so many experiences that I had there, but it's a great place to live, but it's quite expensive too. So I definitely had to leverage some of my budgeting ex- you know, skills to be able to fit in the fun uh, so that it could all happen. And then after three years, my family and I moved back to the U.S. Were you already doing points and miles as you were stationed in Haiti and Dubai? Or where does that come into play with all of yes. these things? Yes, back to the main point, right? <laughs> I actually, my husband and I were collecting miles pretty early in our relationship, even while we were dating, he actually turned me onto it. He got an American Express card and offered me an opportunity to come on as a user and then showed me ways that you could leverage miles to do dinners or even trips and vacations and hotel stays. So we started doing that, I would say 2004 or so. So by the time we moved to Dubai in 2012, it was more so how can we leverage all of the expenses that we are going to have to do anyway, like grocery shopping, some of the school fees and other things we pay for for our children and still make it work for us. So we used to put everything on the American Express card and then pay it off every month. And Amex had the advantage of they didn't charge you conversion fees. They were pretty much readily accepted everywhere. And the miles never expired, right? So we would just let them accumulate. And then at the time, we could also utilize concierge services and other opportunities. So we used to combine Amex points with airline points to get the flights and hotels for free. That's so cool. What pieces of travel were already covered by work versus which ones did you have to pay for? So interestingly enough, when I was overseas, I never got to travel for work. It was all personal, but we got to cover a lot of our hotel weekends, like getaways. And at one point, even a trip to Croatia, not Croatia, Czech Republic, because we saved up our points. And my my husband, actually, he was so cute. He locked me out of the account, but I didn't even notice. <laughs> 
So in order to make sure I didn't use any of the points on anything else, and then he put them towards our hotel stay in the Czech Republic, plus our flights on Emirates Airlines, which was really nice because I got to fly business class for that trip. And my husband traveled a lot. So what he did was he used to have to go to Saudi Arabia and Bahrain and other parts of the Middle East for consulting trips. And he would fly on the company for those, but they had a really nice travel policy. So he got status with Emirates pretty quickly and then was able to leverage that status for us to fly business class like a couple times during our time in Dubai. And then because we were using our American Express card for all of our day-to-day purchases, we were able to leverage those points to cover the hotel stays when we traveled too. So I remember when we went to the Czech Republic, it was our anniversary trip and it was super cute. Like it was a surprise. He didn't want to tell me where we were going until the last minute. And then he did a scavenger hunt around our house, leaving me, leaving me clues so that I could figure out where we were going. And then once I guessed where we were going, he still surprised me because when we got to the airport, that's when I found out I was flying business class and he had like switched out my ticket. And then when we got to the Czech Republic, he didn't tell me like how little we had spent for the trip until like our last dinner. He was like, so how much do you think this trip cost us? And I was like, I don't know. It must have been a ton. And he was like, nope. It was like two, three hundred bucks. Like we had to cover the taxes for the hotel. And that's pretty much it. It was pretty cool. How much would it have cost if he had to pay for it all in cash? I am thinking about at least 2500 to 3000 because the Europe at that time travel to Europe was pretty high it was high season for the Czech Republic we were in those tiny european hotel rooms but still like a major part of the city walking distance to everything plus and that's probably i mean if we had actually paid for business class flights it would have been twice that that's insane <laughs> So you said your husband is a consultant and yes. not also a diplomat. How does that work when you get stationed to a different country? Because I know this is one of the struggles that a lot of couples will face if they want to move abroad. There's like a Venn diagram of like where one person can move and where another person can move. And like, it can be hard to find a country that fits in the middle of that Venn diagram if you're not both location independent. So how did that work for you guys? That's a really good question. And that's something that is a struggle for couples in the foreign service too. I will say the first thing we did is he has a job that has international locations and that's key. And they're willing to allow you to work at those locations, but it still took coordination. We spent the year before we left putting all the pieces together. I gave him a list of all the countries that I could go to. And then he looked at that list and looked at all the countries where his office was located. And then he spent about six months trying to convince the Dubai office that they needed another person with his skill set. And at the time, they weren't really convinced because they were doing a lot of shuffling around and they were looking at their budget. But he still was like, no, you should really bet on me. This is going to pay off. And it did because after three years, they were begging him to stay. But it takes coordination. And even for people who are two diplomats and they're married together, they have to coordinate because depending on what they do, sometimes you can't even both work at the same embassy because you can't do the same job. And so 
I know when we were in Dubai, there were some spouses who lived in Abu Dhabi, which is the capital. And there's about an hour and a half between the two places. And so families would meet on the weekend or the other option is you both work in a big city where there's multiple jobs or multiple people doing the same job so that you both can have the ability to do that job in that country. But it does take coordination. And it's also why we've been back in the U.S. for a while, because in the U.S., I still um, am a diplomat. I work on different issues. But now he can go back to his headquarters and consult you know, with his clients pretty much anywhere in the world. So when we both came back to the U.S., that's when we really leveled up on our points in travel because he traveled for his job. And now that he had had an international experience, they were sending him to Japan and Ireland and the U.K. on a regular basis. And when I came back to the States, I was a recruiter. So I was traveling all over the U.S. And so I leveraged my ability to choose my hotels and choose a brand that works for me. So I stuck with Bon. Well, now it's Marriott Bonvoy, but at the time I decided to stick with Marriott, and my husband was sticking with Starwood because SPG was his favorite brand. But we used to use that as an opportunity to leverage where we vacationed, and we would basically go to the country we wanted to and stay at the brand that had the best option for us. So if I had the better hotel, we'd stay at a Marriott, and then I'd have status. I have platinum status with Marriott. So I get free breakfasts, lounge access. So you end up saving money on food. And then if my husband had the better status, he still got the same perks, but we would stay at an SPG. When Marriott and SPG merged, it was like butter for us because then we didn't have to compete for the points of the nights and we could combine our points and get real stays. So free stays in Aruba. What are some other places? We've we, I get a free stay at night just because I have the Marriott credit card, but we've done a lot of combining our points. So then we were able to leverage Amex points, Marriott points, and all the travel that we've been doing. Because I traveled and stayed in hotels over 75 nights a year for two years straight for my job. What kind of status do you get for 75 nights? Platinum status gives you upgraded rooms automatically every time you stay if there's availability, free lounge access, which the lounge, they give you food, happy hour, like sometimes drinks, sometimes food to go with those drinks. And then you also get free breakfast. And so if they don't have a lounge, then you get free breakfast in the restaurant. If they have a lounge, then you get free food in the lounge. And so I could go on a personal or a work trip and save on one meal, at least one meal a day. But then if you go to the happy hour and you eat all the small plates, you could get dinner too. I've definitely done that in some places where just the cost of food can be really expensive. Hawaii or a lot of the islands where if you only have one restaurant option and that restaurant's expensive, that free happy hour where you just load up on hors d'oeuvres and that's enough for dinner it can save you a lot of money. Absolutely. And so that's why I did it. And that's why I still do it. And my that's why my family loves to travel with me too, because they know when they check in, they're going to get treated better. For example, when, when my dad turned 65, we did a surprise trip to Panama and her his girlfriend helped me orchestrate all this. Because I'm sure you're like, how do you surprise someone with an overseas trip? So she had him thinking they were going to Panama together. 
And then when they landed, we were waiting with the signs and cheering. And then he was like, oh my God, my daughter's here, my son-in-law, my I had my cousins there. So we did this surprise trip. And because we went in kind of lower season, we got to the hotel, it was two hours away from Panama City Airport, and it was a beautiful beach location. And they had the ability to upgrade everybody because they were like, you you have status and we have the room. So they upgraded my dad. He had never had a king suite room before. And, and then I had like a full apartment. Like they gave me a living room. I could have had six seated dinner, <laughs> you know, just like random stuff that you're like, where, where am I using this space? But it was nice to be able to have a room where everybody could congregate. But those are some of the perks that when they have it, they will extend it to the party that I'm traveling with, which is also very nice. What hotel property did you stay at in Panama? Buenaventura, I think it was called. Um, is that in Panama City? It, no, it's two hours outside and it's, oh, it's such beautiful sand beach hotel. We drove there. We rented a car, but we drove there and it's gorgeous. And then they have several restaurants on the property and quite a few bars. That's amazing. <laughs> so let's go back a little bit to your life as a diplomat. What do you do as a diplomat? And now you say you're a recruiter. Do you recruit other people to become diplomats? I did for two years, but I don't do that anymore. So Diplomats have a couple of different jobs they do, but in general, we promote the foreign policy uh, of the U.S. government and U.S. interests abroad and help protect Americans abroad. So I am a logistics management officer who really focuses on contracting, procurement, the VIP visits, like whenever you have top top officials of the government travel, we kind of take care of them. We facilitate their meetings, but we will also organize conferences and other things that the government sponsors abroad. So as that person, I'm making sure U.S. tax dollars are appropriately spent when we're overseas. I also, when I'm here in the U.S., I might facilitate better relationships with other countries, diplomatic staff, and our staff. So I used to work on the Columbia desk, for example, and I would spend a lot of time working with the Colombian embassy on trade issues, on any issues dealing with diplomacy. And so you can also end up dealing with visas because visas and people's ability to visit the U.S. is a huge portion of what we do abroad by allowing students and even celebrities to perform here. And then we also have officers who facilitate the economic business relationship between two countries, encouraging U.S. businesses to invest abroad and encouraging other companies to invest in the U.S. So we do a lot of work in that space to promote better relationships with our allies and also negotiating trade agreements and other things that facilitate more business and opportunity. I currently am working on supporting some of our embassies and consulates in Asia because there's a few things that you still need the department's support in Washington to facilitate, whether it's larger contracts that are very expensive or even hiring individuals because all the hiring pretty much for Americans starts in the U.S., And for local staff, it will start in the country wherever you're located. So we have to have a lot of support on that end. So that's my job right now is just supporting the contracts, the hiring, and the six embassies in Asia. 
And that's the cool part is in the foreign service, you get to change what you do every two to three years. So although I'm always going to be a diplomat, I apply for different opportunities every two to three years. And once I'm selected to do that, then I get to change my job too. So that makes every day interesting. That makes me not get bored, but I still get to constantly go back to how much I'm helping people. Like for example, during the pandemic, I facilitated a lot of evacuation flights for American citizens who wanted to come home and they were stuck overseas. That is all fascinating. I knew like nothing about this field of work. What are some of the biggest misconceptions that people have about what it's like to be a diplomat? (laughs) The biggest one is they think I work for another agency. Everyone assumes I'm a spy and that is not true. My family is constantly saying they don't understand what I do. And I I get it because it changes. But the bottom line is just when you think of foreign policy, think of the State Department. The other thing is everyone assumes that when we start out, we're ambassadors. And that's not technically true. Like, I think everyone is an ambassador for the America, right? How you act and how you perform overseas is could be the best and only impression that some people get of Americans. So I think it's important for us to be on our good behavior when we're abroad. But we're not, by title, we're not ambassadors. Ambassadors are individuals appointed by the president to represent him or her abroad. And that is the highest ranking person that manages the embassy and manages the staff wherever you are, right? So I'm not an ambassador yet, but maybe one day. But I am a diplomat because we're all swear on the Bible and the con- to protect the Constitution. And that's our pri- priority. So, you know, what I do doesn't change really that much between administrations because that's another thing people assume that. I'm only protecting and serving certain presidents, and that's not true. We protect and serve the Constitution and the American people. And that's something that keeps us grounded so that our job is pretty consistent no matter who's in office. So if somebody's listening to this and they're like, I want to do this career, how can somebody career switch into being a diplomat if they're not coming right out of grad school or something? Do they have to go back to grad school and get a degree in political science? What's the... No, that's a good question. Actually, the law only requires that you have a high school diploma in order to be a foreign service officer, but we do have a test process to get in. And I will say most of our officers have at least a bachelor's, some of them a master's. So the law only requires that you have a high school degree, but I recommend you have more. You can go to careers.state.gov to check out the website and learn all the ways that you can be a diplomat. What I do specifically is just one type, but we take IT specialists, we have doctors, we have nurses, we have psychiatrists, we have a lot of different professions that are in the foreign service. And diplomatic security are those that protect our safety and security abroad. So you can also be from a law enforcement background and be in the foreign service service as well. So careers.state.gov is a great way to learn more. We also offer internships for students. You do have to be a student, but you can do an internship overseas or in the in the US. And then we also have an app, DOS Careers. So if you want to look in the app store at DOS Careers, you can learn more in the app and you can also get test questions to help you prepare for the exam process cuz we do have a test that we take in order to get hired. 
Do you get to choose where you get stationed abroad if somebody's like, I really want to go to Dubai? Yes and no. So in the beginning of your career, you get a list and you kind of rank your list on what you'd like to do. And then they still, with your communication with you, will help you select and pick for you. But then once you're tenured, that's basically, you know, three to five years into your career, you're um, determined someone who can do this job, they will give you tenure. And once you're tenure, then you do pick, but you're still applying. So you have to apply for the opportunities and then you have to be selected, but you get to choose what you apply to. No one forces you to go anywhere. Sometimes in different TV dramas, they like to throw around the word diplomatic immunity. What is that? What is diplomatic immunity? It is a real thing, but it essentially says that while you're in a diplomatic capacity abroad, okay, there are certain things that can't happen to you in certain capacities. So most of the time, it'll mean like you can't be sued or, you know, arrested and sent off to jail and other things like that. But those privileges depend on where you're serving. So you don't get the same diplomatic immunity at embassies as you do at consulates. And it depends on what you're doing in those countries, what that means. But we extend the same courtesy to other countries. So if they give us diplomatic diplomatic immunity in their country, then when their diplomats are in the U.S., they get the same privileges granted to their diplomats. And so it essentially kind of prevents you from getting into too much trouble when you're working, when you're there and you're supposed to be working for your mission but does not give people just like free reign to go to a foreign country and act like an idiot. No, (laughs) absolutely not. And there are some Americans who could potentially come back to the U.S. and face penalties depending on what they did or allegedly did. So you have to be really careful on um, what you're doing. And again, you have to be a good representative of America wherever you are. Absolutely. I like to remind people that they should do that, whether or not they're in a specific diplomatic capacity. Please don't just go travel and act like an idiot in other places. Tip people well. Don't like be scammy when like anywhere. Just be a good person as you're traveling so that other countries don't ban the rest of us from like (laughs) welcoming the nice to American tourists. Yeah. And I also try to tell Americans because the movies will tell you otherwise. Like we don't. You know, if you're arrested in a foreign country for doing bad things, we're not going to bring out the Navy SEAL and bring down the Black Hawk helicopters and rescue you from this local jail because you're having a miserable life. So I also try to remind people, like, you know, do the right thing for the sake of your own sanity, because those movies are lying to you. We will visit you. Don't get me wrong. We will visit you in jail. We will make sure that you're not being mistreated. but you have to remember that it's mistreated in comparison to the normal standards of that country and what is considered normal for them. So if the jails are not as nice as the U.S., as long as you're being treated equally, there's not much we can do. So I try to remind people of that, like, just stay out of trouble. (laughs) If you're being treated equally to somebody who like did something bad in North Korea, that's like a pretty low bar of equal. So <laughs> it, it, exactly, but it also, you know, I've I've been to a prison in Ecuador, for example, and in Ecuador, 
some of the prisoners in this one in this female prison, they had their children in there with them. They had to pay for their bed. They had to pay for their food. And a lot of times the family would come and provide them food and resources because that was the most affordable way to to pay for it. But when you're an American in an Ecuadorian jail and you don't have a family locally who's providing these things for you, you have to pay. And they were like, what do you mean I have to pay for my bed? What do you mean I have to pay for my my food? And I'm like, if that's the standard in this country, then that is the standard. And unfortunately, you're in jail. So <laughs> this is kind of like how it works. So that's that's kind of what I try to remind people. Like, please don't break the law abroad and have fun, but be responsible. Make us look good. And then hopefully don't make me visit you. Yeah, that's... <laughs> That's probably like the best piece of advice that you can get out of this episode is if Aquania has to come visit you in foreign jail, you did something wrong. <laughs> so anywho, I have tons of great stories about that, but I'll share that for another time one-on-one. Sounds good. All right. So now that you're back in the U.S., what is the next step in your travel hacking plans with your family? Is there something that you guys are planning to do? Is there another move abroad that you guys are planning for anytime soon? What's next on the roadmap? Yeah, so we may move abroad in the next two years, but I'm not sure about that. We're still navigating our life here and we really love being closer to family because that is one downside is sometimes your 14-hour flight from your nearest family member and you can't get home so quickly. So we've been taking advantage of being near our elders. But one thing I did recently that I love is I travel hacked business class. I don't know if anyone's talked about this on your show before, but this is what I recently did. I've been to Belize, Morocco, and Aruba since the beginning of 2021. And Morocco was such a long flight and I wasn't feeling well because at the end I got a little sick. And then my mom was traveling with me and she also was like not feeling well. So I had called American on the way to the airport because American was the, the airline provider partner. And American wanted to charge me like 3,200 bucks to upgrade to business class on the like route to the airport. And I was like, mm-hmm, 3,200 per person. That's crazy. I'm not doing that. So... My best friend on the way to Morocco was like, I only paid 700. I don't understand why it's so much money. So the lady on the phone was like, oh, well, sometimes you have the same day upgrade option that you can take advantage of in the airport. But when you call in, I have to give you the actual difference and fare between a coach ticket and a business class ticket. I was like, okay, thanks, but no thanks. I hung up the phone. I went to the airport. I went to the check-in like customer service desk for Air Morocco, because that's the airline in Morocco. And Air Morocco actually looked it up and they were able to upgrade us for $850 on the same ticket and in 15 to 20 minutes. And so obviously I took advantage of that because it's way cheaper than $3,200 a person. And my mother and I got to lay down and sleep most of the way back home. So if you're a flexible traveler and you're like, open to waiting until you get to the airport to upgrade, that's a great way to save thousands on business class seats. Did you buy the economy seats in cash or points? Cash. 
Okay. So you can you do this on points where you buy the economy in points and then you just pay eight hundred and fifty to upgrade? I I don't know. I have. To, I'm going to try it. <laughs> That's what I'll try next. But I but my coach ticket was only eight hundred dollars. I think. So I did do a coach ticket eight hundred coach ticket eight hundred round trip, mind you. So <laughs> being able to pay the same amount of money to fly business class back is still a good deal. And then not paying thirty two hundred is also a, good, a blessing. But I did do cash for the original ticket. And then I could technically have paid off the upgrade with point if I wanted to, but that's something I would do between me and my credit card company, not me and Air Maroc. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, cool. That's a good tip for anybody if you can wait until you get to the airport before you do your upgrade. Yeah. What's on the dream list for next places you want to be stationed? Oh, that's a good question. I've never worked in... Africa, but I've been to several countries in Africa. So that might be an option. I loved South Africa when I went and Senegal when I went. But I wouldn't mind going back to Asia because before the pandemic, I went to South Korea, Malaysia, and Thailand. And I actually really, really like Thailand. I, that was my second time going to Thailand, actually. And so that's another possible dream job. But again, it's so far from home that that's the only downside. And then it would be cool to live in Australia or New Zealand too. Very cool. Well, this is all such amazing stuff. I've never, I don't think I've ever met a diplomat before. I've definitely never gotten to ask questions about what's your career and how did you get here and how do you work in travel hacking with your day job? So this is absolutely fascinating for me. And I have like 15 million follow-up questions. But it's okay. I'll probably like <laughs> Maybe do a follow-up to this at some other point. Absolutely. Uh, but if you had to kind of summarize all of your travel hacking knowledge into one piece of travel hacking advice for people, what's your best one-line piece of advice for an Instagram graphic? Okay. So take advantage of building your business or building your brand and your ambassadorship with one hotel if you're going to do a lot of work travel. I chose Marriott and that allowed me to get status that I could utilize on personal vacations too. And then I saved money on food. I got lounge access and I got upgrades to my rooms and the more space gave us more freedom to invite more people. So that's my biggest one. And secondly, Take advantage of all the cards that offer points, but be strategic in how you use them. So I always use the card that allows me to transfer points between different companies. So Amex allows us to transfer to airlines pretty easily. And that's why we use it because we can use our American Express on all kinds of purchases, everyday purchases, but then we can move the points to the brand that we need if we're trying to get the free hotel or the free flights. Sounds good. And we like to do shout outs on this show. So can you name another travel hacker on the internet that you think other people should go follow because of some awesome travel hacking content? Yeah. Shout out to Danielle Desir of the Thought Card Podcast. She's a financial travel savvy traveler and she promotes good finances and travel and has done quite a few affordable trips. Her favorite being Iceland a few times. But now she's really doing a lot of road trips around the U.S. that have been pretty awesome too. 
Super cool. And I absolutely love Danielle. I've had her on the show for episode 32. I believe she's made like 12 different streams of income for her side gig through her blog, her podcast, her um, membership for women of color and podcasting. So lots of good stuff there. Make sure you check out episode 32 featuring Danielle. And where can we find you on the internet? Yes, absolutely. The purpose of money.com is my blog and podcast where you'll find wealth building tips and entrepreneurship stories. And then I also am on Instagram at the purpose of money and on Twitter at purpose underscore money. Super cool. I feel like we didn't even touch into this since we talked mostly about your day job, but do you have side gigs too? And like, what's your entrepreneurship (laughs) journey? We didn't even touch on that. So I have a few things. I'll try to keep it short. Life insurance, I sell to anyone who's willing to invest in buying wealth and protecting their future's family. I'm a huge advocate for life insurance to do so. And I also have a financial coaching business under the purpose of money where I coach women on how to level up their finances and build wealth. I am a real estate investor. I'm a hotel owner. So that's my newest hack is I just invested in a Hilton hotel last fall. And as a Hilton owner, you get a Hilton hotel discount. So I'm going to start transitioning from Marriott to Hilton on a lot of my travel for the, for the discount. And what else do I do? I have a blog. I have a podcast as well. The Purpose of Money podcast is on all listening platforms. And that's it, I think. Okay. I know somebody is like going to write hate mail to me if I don't ask follow questions on this. So tell us about owning Hilton and how (laughs) does somebody do that? What does that entail? What's the process of becoming a Hilton owner? So believe it or not, the process of becoming a hotel owner is having a solid foundation with your finances. So my husband and I started saving and investing our money early so that when the right opportunity came along, we had the cash to invest. As a limited partner in a Hilton, I Put up cut, I put up money. My cash investment is for ownership over the next five to seven years max. As a cash investor, you do get dividends every quarter in addition to the hotel discount. So uh, I invested based on the projected returns. You have to have cash because hotels are pretty cash intensive. Uh, they require a lot of capital, but the pandemic provided an opportunity to purchase a hotel at a deep discount. And we were able to take over the mortgage, which is pretty interesting because that means we only had to come up with a fraction of the value. And now that we have ownership where and the market is turning around and people are traveling again, then now we get to enjoy a, pro- a portion of the profits. And, and so if you're ever in El Reno, Oklahoma, stay at my home to home to suites in El Reno, Oklahoma. I stayed there. It's actually a really nice hotel, great location near restaurants and right near the road. So it's perfect for road trip travel too. And it's about two hours from Tulsa. If you want to check out Black Wall Street and the history there. That's so cool. How did you even get into this? Are you just Googling like I can go buy a Hilton today. How does somebody just go buy a Hilton? Yeah. So actually I had Epic Collective, which is Davon Reeves and Jessica Myers on my podcast on episode 26, where they talked about how to buy a hotel. And then they emailed their list and I was on it about an opportunity. I looked at how much it costs to get involved and what would be the potential return. I asked them a hundred questions, which they answered them all to my satisfaction. And then I decided 
decided to put in my cash with along with my cousin who also invested with me and a sorority sister. And then they found other investors as well. So there's a small group of us, but together we own this hotel and they found the deal. So the best way to get into hotel ownership is to network and network with people who are in that space and who are always getting offers. Because in this case, a bank contacted them to potentially take over the mortgage to save this guy and also save the hotel. And then they went and looked for people who had the capital to invest. And I've been looking at some other opportunities with them that have been really potential to be really good. And so the first thing is expand your network ask questions, send me a DM if you're interested, but you can technically go on certain websites and look for hotels too, but it's not the best way to do it. You really should go through a broker, a commercial broker, or someone who has access to uh, deals as they come available. Was this the first time you tried to buy a hotel and it worked out the first time? Okay. So there's, there's not like a one time I tried to buy a hotel and it was disastrous. <laughs> <laughs> not, not, well, I have that story that I'm about to write soon. I'm on, I'm in a, I'm pending with another opportunity and it is not going as smoothly. The Hilton deal, we found out about it in the beginning of the month and we're closed by the end of the month. The second time I tried to invest in a hotel, I am still working on that. And it's been a few months later. So I'll let you know how it goes, but if it doesn't work out, then I will also have a, Second time I tried to invest in a hotel story. <laughs> Are you still going to stick with Marriott loyalty, even though you now kind of own a Hilton hotel? I am. I'm spreading myself around. <laughs> Depends on if the hotel is located where I'm trying to go. So Marriott is still one of the largest brands in the world. But there um, are great opportunities to stay at Hilton's at certain places. So if there is a Hilton, I will stay at the Hilton. But if there's not a Hilton, I'll definitely choose Marriott. Did you say you get benefits with the broader Hilton chain by being an owner of one particular Hilton hotel? Yes. Yes. Cool. Friends and family discount. Yes. Nice. Well, this is absolutely fascinating. This will... There's... So many follow-up <laughs> questions that I have. We'll probably end up having you on for like a follow-up episode down the road. But this has been so amazing to have you talk about what it's like to be a U.S. diplomat, how somebody can even go into that career field, how to own a Hilton hotel, and how to work in Dubai. We've learned so much from you today. So thank you so much, Aquania, for coming on to the GeoBreach Travel Podcast. You're welcome. It was a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode of the GeoBreeze Travel Podcast. If any of the cards mentioned in today's episode piqued your interest, please check out the links in the show notes for more information on any of the cards. Also, if you apply for a card using the links on that page, I may receive a commission too, so please and thank you. P.S. I hear the links work better in Internet Explorer or Safari, and sometimes the credit card applications tend to glitch out in Chrome. Additionally, it would mean the world to me if you could subscribe to this podcast, leave a five-star review, and share it with a friend. And if you would like to make even more travel hacking friends, please sign up for the Patreon to access our monthly masterclass hangouts. We dive deep into a particular points program each month, and you'll get to ask all of your travel hacking questions and enjoy being around other people who enjoy points and miles just as much as you and I do. If you would like an invite to the next one, head over to geobreezetravel.com hangouts to sign up to be on the invite list. 
Take care and happy travels.